feel like the Green Bay Packers trying to find an opening coming up the platform there. Did they win last night? I can't remember. I know, I'm, I'm just kidding. Just for you 49er fans, wanted to throw that out there. We're gonna have prayer at the end of the service, and I want us to utilize that more. Hopefully we will today. Uh, some of you have challenges that you have been introduced to this week. Some of you have some things to celebrate. Uh, some of you are walking with uh, loss in your life even now, some recent companion. And so our deacons will be at the end of the aisles, uh, and I'll be at the cross, and we'll also be in the atrium after the service. You hear me say that each week, but I hope that we'll utilize that. Uh, just sometimes it feels humbling when we ask somebody else to pray for us, and in a weird way, our pride can keep us from experiencing what God might want to do in our life. So I hope that you'll utilize these opportunities to pray with uh, these people at the end of the service. Um, you know, when I, we were singing that song and Warren was talking about that, it reminded me of really my first major funeral as a pastor, a gentleman by the name of Bob Strickland. Um, he intimidated me more than anyone else in our church. I was a pastor, became a pastor at 28, and he died uh, within the first year and a half that I was there. But uh, he had been paralyzed with polio brilliant Bible scholar, knew way more about the Bible than I did and challenged me regularly. And I remember going to see him in the hospital before he died. And uh, he said to me from his bed, he said, my life is about to begin. And I was a 28 year old pastor, 29 I guess at that point. And I figured that he was a little bit confused with the medicine and everything and was trying to tell me that his life was about to end but he knew exactly what he's talking about, that his life was about to begin. As it is for each one of us as followers of Jesus Christ, our life begins with Christ when we embrace him as our Lord and Savior, and then when we pass from this life to the next, our eternal life begins in a level that we can't even begin to imagine, and we wanna celebrate that. So I hope that you'll take the time to pray with one another uh, at the end of the service. We, we began a series last week called Route 66, and I should say Route 66, I've said both, but I recognize that we are in the South. Uh, I grew up in Arizona, it was Route 66 out there, but here in the South it's Route 66. But uh, we'll remember that as a highway, that great highway that was established in 1926, became one of the most famous highways in American history, traveling from Chicago all the way out to Santa Monica, California, 2,448 miles. And as we think about that, it really serves as a great backdrop for us as we go through the Bible, because we have a Route 66, it's called the Bible, 66 books that all have the exact same story. And that story is this, we have a problem that only Jesus can resolve. And that sounds very simplistic, and some of you that know, there, there are many Bob Stricklands in this church that know about the Bible so much better than me. And we can look at that and say that sounds overly simplified, but it really is the truth, is that we have a problem that only Jesus can solve. And we might think, well, Okay, it's probably not a real significant problem, but it, it is a terminal problem that leads to eternal separation from God, that we die in our sins. And so the Bible is about this situation, that we have a problem from the very beginning. And as we go through these 66 books, all of these books are pointing us to that truth, that our problem can only be resolved through Jesus Christ, even though the world will tell us there are many ways to try to resolve the issues of our life. Last week, we looked at the uh, uh, Genesis, the first book, has this enormous amount of history going from creation 
all the way leading up to Joseph and the people of God ending up in Egypt. And today we come to Exodus, which is the second book, book of the Bible, and we're trying to see how all of these relate together. Don't forget, as you look at that slide about Route 66, that in the middle, faintly, you will see a cross, and everything leads to the cross. It leads us to Jesus Christ. And Exodus is gonna serve as a great picture of our situation even now all these millennia later. Exodus, Pew Bible, page 87. We've already jumped and we have jumped from when we fin finished Genesis 50 to Exodus 1, we will see that 400 years have transpired between the turning of just that one page. It's kind of like turning the page from Malachi to Matthew. 400 years have transpired and we pick up the story being reminded that the people of God are enslaved and they are mistreated by the Egyptians. And this has been going on for four centuries. And God already knew that that was gonna happen. Friends, whatever you're facing now, be reminded that God goes before you. He knows the future before it ever begins. And God knew this, he told this to Abraham, even when he's establishing a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, and before Isaac was even born to initiate this covenant. He said, your people, will be in Exodus and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. What do you think about when you think about the book of Exodus? Well, we probably think about the 10 Commandments and that's a very significant part of this book. But this book is really a living parable about our lives, our lives in this room and every individual that is introduced to life in this world. There are three words that help us to better understand this living parable. Words that define our life. Bondage, deliverance, transformation. That is a picture of the Christian life. That we must be, resurrect, we must be re redeemed and delivered out of bondage and then transformed into what Jesus Christ has created us to be. From bondage to deliverance to transformation. Bondage we find in here when God's people were under the bondage of Pharaoh for 400 years. They had no control over their lives. Can you imagine that? You're free to get up and walk out of this room right now. Doesn't that make you feel powerful? You can just get up and walk out. And when you leave here, you can go virtually anywhere that you want. But for four centuries, generation after generation repeated this cycle of being born into slavery, living in slavery, and dying in slavery. They were hopeless and helpless. What do you think that does to your psyche? I mean, what kind of beatdown is that? Anybody, real fast, how old is the United States? Roughly 250 years, right? Round it off. So that means as long as the United States has existed, they were in slavery 150 years more than the existence of the United States. And so you get into this perpetual cycle of just feeling like there is no way out. And we look at this and we think, okay, this is a story from history, and, and, and it is. But God is using this to paint a picture of what life is like for everyone. We are hopeless and helpless without Jesus Christ, and the Bible will tell us that. It's who we are in our sins. There's nothing that they could do to liberate themselves. Pharaoh was all powerful. They couldn't just walk out. 
They couldn't extricate themselves from their slavery. Only God can do that, and only God can do that to us in the midst of our sins. So it's just the introduction of Exodus. It reminds us. I mean, it happened so quickly. You turn from Genesis 50 where everybody goes down to Egypt. 70 people go down, Jacob's family. 70 people go down there. Everything is good. They have all of the privileges. And then you turn the page and all of a sudden in Exodus 1, we find that four centuries have transpired and they are nothing but slaves. And it quickly moves from there to God's deliverance. It begins to tell us about Pharaoh being very troubled about the population growth. The Hebrew people are expanding rapidly, and the Egyptians are fearful that they might one day take over. So Pharaoh comes up with a genocide policy for the Hebrews in which every male that is born would be terminated. The midwives were clearly instructed that if it's a female, it's fine, let her live. But if it's a male, Make sure that child dies. But the Hebrew midwives, the midwives who helped out the Hebrews, feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. Smart lesson there. And so we find that Moses ends up floating in an ark, a basket. And that's not by chance. We look at that and say, it's kind of an interesting story, isn't it? Genesis 9, the ark, the way that God delivers And here is Moses floating in the bulrushes of the Nile River. And Pharaoh has given an edict that every male Hebrew must be killed. And do you remember who spotted Moses in the ark in the Nile? Pharaoh's daughter. So she adopts a child that her dad said must die. Only God could do that. What an amazing story of how God works. Well, Moses is raised up in Pharaoh's household, (laughs) the same guy that said, you've got to be killed. At the age of 40, he has a midlife crisis, and he kills an Egyptian. He knows the the conflict of interest here, that he's he's raised in privilege, but he also sees that, that his relatives are enslaved and he sees an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew, so he decides that he's going to kill the Egyptian, trying to show that he's going to be their liberator. And that gets back to Pharaoh, and Moses is on the lamb. He runs 300 miles to Midian and starts a new life. He thinks his life is over. At the age of 40, he runs away. And for 40 years, in that time, he gets married. He becomes a shepherd and is somewhat of an introvert out in the wilderness. At the age of 80, while he's out attending his flocks, God speaks to him through a bush that's on fire. We call it the burning bush, but it wasn't burning. It's just on fire. And God calls him, and Moses appears to be the least likely leader to go back and bring his people out of Egypt. Why does he seem so least likely? Well, number one, he's been run out of town. But number two, he seems a little bit fearful. Just think about the picture here. God gives him a picture of what he's going to do with his staff. And he says, what do you have in your staff? Because Moses is trying to say, you've got the wrong guy. And probably all of us would say, yeah, you do. And God says, throw down your staff, and the staff becomes a snake. And what does Moses do? He runs. 
His staff becomes a snake, and he runs, and we're sitting here thinking, God, how in the world do you think a guy who runs from a snake is going to be able to stand up to Pharaoh? But that's the good news for us. God reminds Moses, it's not who you are, it's who I am, the all-sufficient, self-sufficient God. And the good news for all of us is that God seems to have an affinity for those of us who are voted least likely to be used by God. Now, you probably didn't get that title in high school, least likely to be used by God. I was close because people looked at me and said, I don't, th- I still remember a friend trying to talk me out of being, becoming a priest because he thought that was just the worst thing I could do with my life. But just out of curious, curiously, how many of you would vote for yourself as the least likely to be used by God? Well, we don't have a confidence problem here. Not many hands went up. I mean, <laughs> great. But some of us do. How in the world could God ever use me? But Moses is a picture of how God does use even the most unlikely. He returns to Egypt, and he embraces his role as the one who will be used by God to liberate God's people from the forces of Pharaoh. But as so often happens in our lives, things go from bad to worse. He comes in, he's finally building a little bit of confidence that God is gonna use him, that there is a plan, we're gonna make this thing happen, and the first thing that happens is his people turn on him because he tells Pharaoh it's time to let his people go, and Pharaoh says, don't think so, and he begins to make the Hebrew people work even harder, having to get their own straw for the bricks and keeping up with the same quota of bricks each and every day. But persistence prevails. I want you to hear that, friends. Persistence will prevail. And that's why we're called to be persistent, perseverant in our faith in Jesus Christ to the very end. Well, God gives Moses some signs to influence Pharaoh. Moses is really one of the first influencers that we see on the social scene. He comes to Pharaoh, takes his staff again, turns it into a snake. Only problem is Pharaoh has magicians that can do the same thing. Comes up with another sign. He will cause the river and all the water to turn into blood. Magicians are able to do the same thing. Then he comes up with a plan to make frogs, in which God creates all of these frogs to invade Egypt, but the Magicians can do the same thing, but here's the unique twist, hinge point of the story. Third plague, gnats. Magicians seem to be mimicking what God can do, and Satan will always do that. Paul would say he's disguised as an angel of light. He will always mimic what God can do, but he can never replicate what God can do. He can never replicate what God can do, even though he will mimic it. And the third plague begins to show us that. It's the plague of the gnats. And this time, Moses says, unique to this particular situation is for the first time, there will be a delineation between God's people and the Egyptians. And the gnats will invade your side of the country, but not ours. 
and they do, and for the first time, the magicians cannot duplicate, and they say, this is the finger of God. But the problem with Pharaoh is he has a recurring line. He doesn't have a whole lot of lines in the book of Exodus, but Exodus, he just seems to be stuck on this one line. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And then the third plague begins to get his attention. That's followed by the flies, the livestock, the boils, the hail, which is the first one that threatens the life of man, locusts, darkness, and then that final plague, the firstborn. Each plague is a statement against the gods that the Egyptians worshiped. We look at them as just random plagues. God just picks out a a few different things to do, but each one is pointing to a God that the Egyptians worshiped, and God is defining himself as supreme and sovereign over all. It reveals the difference between the sufficiency of God and the insufficiency of man, especially in that final plague. Because don't forget that the Egyptians worshiped Pharaoh. And when God threw down the gauntlet and said, the firstborn of every household will die, Pharaoh couldn't stop it. And he buried his firstborn son. From bondage to deliverance, roughly two million Hebrews, 430 years after they went down to Egypt, you can find that in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, Roughly two million Hebrews ransacked the Egyptians and walked out of town. Remember what happened at the Red Sea? They came to the Red Sea. Chaos erupted. So many said we should have just stayed in Egypt. It was so much better there. We should have stayed there. But God delivers them through the Red Sea. And just as we've talked about the various miracles that we find in Genesis, here we find a a miracle in Exodus in addition to all of the plagues, the miracle of the Red Sea, which is oftentimes belittled and mocked and supposedly debunked by skeptics. Many will say that the Red Sea really wasn't a sea, but it was more like a marsh and the water was only two feet deep. And so I leave it for you to decide which side of this miracle you go with. Either, as the Bible tells us, two million people walked through on dry ground, or you can embrace the other miracle that God destroyed the entire Egyptian army, all of them drowned in less than two feet of water. So which direction do you go? Well, I go with Scripture. It says that God parted the waters and opened it up, and as the Egyptians went in, he was even demonstrating his sovereignty over the wheels of the chariot in which they would get stuck. And God delivered them. So they're in bondage, and God delivers them, but here's where we oftentimes stop the Christian story. We're in sin. We need to be saved. Job done. But what does Exodus tell us? That there is a bondage, a deliverance, and then a transformation. When we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and he comes in and we fully surrender our life to him, 
We are to be transformed, and that's what takes place. In the book of Exodus, this living miracle about bondage, deliverance, and transformation, don't let that part of the story be left out. I loved what, what Warren was talking about. I, I couldn't even follow all that. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, how much did they, they have to pay for that gravestone? I mean, that's a lot of stuff. But it says that death arrested his progress. Is that right? Death arrested his progress. God expects us, expects us as Christians to be progressing. Not just we were in bondage and now we're delivered. He wants us to be progressing through transformation to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And that's what God does. They take a seven-week journey down to Mount Sinai. And on the way, as the people begin to grumble, we'll find that 15 different times as we go through the Pentateuch, we'll find at least 15 different times they're complaining and grumbling. It feels like a whole bunch more than that. But 15 uniquely different times, they're complaining and griping and grumbling against Moses and against God. And along the way, God gives them manna. And that begins to be part of that transformational process. Will they trust God on a daily basis to provide everything that they will need? It's a learning process of trusting God. And when they get to Exodus chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments that we often think of as a pivotal part of the book of Exodus. And that is a part of the transformational process. They have been slaves for four centuries. They were always told what to do. They didn't have any idea of what they would do on their own. And now as a liberated people, no longer slaves, how do they live as a free people? God is creating and transforming them into a nation. And as we go back to the book of Genesis, reminded that God has a purpose. And what is the purpose for the people of God? To be a blessing to the nations. What are we to be as Christians? a blessing to the nations. And that blessing is telling them of how they can move from bondage to deliverance to transformation through Jesus Christ. God is establishing it. I think one of the most interesting ones in all of the Ten Commandments, so significant, one of the most interesting things is the Fourth Commandment. What does the Fourth Commandment tell us? It's about the Sabbath, and they are to rest. And for four centuries, they have not rested a single day. They've never had a day of rest. It's seven days a week of doing the same thing over and over and over until you die and God establishes and says, I will be a different God to you than Pharaoh. You will have a day of rest to acknowledge me as God. The golden calf in so many ways is evidence of their lack of trust in God and their confusion over what it means to be a free people. And we do the same thing, don't we? I think about the four soils that, that Jesus talks about and with the seed follows it. And so oftentimes we find that we have a lack of trust and we have confusion over what it means to trust God. And so we need this process of being transformed day in and day out. What you find interesting in the book of Exodus is that there is more print about the establishment of worship in the tabernacle than the whole story of the Exodus. Exodus has more print about the establishment of worship and the tabernacle. And you have chapter after chapter after chapter. And you're going to be, if you're reading through the Bible, you'll be hitting it here in a few weeks as you read through Exodus. And all of these details about the tabernacle, what is God saying? I am establishing and transforming you from a people in bondage to a people that are liberated and freed to worship me. Exodus ends with a tabernacle. What a beautiful fitting ending is it starts with people in bondage. 
And it ends with the tabernacle being filled with the glory of God. Say, that's history. But friends, that's a picture. That's a picture of us. God wants to take us from our bondage to being the very temple of God in which his glory fills us. What a manifestation. Mile marker to Christ. In each one of these books, we want to find the mile marker to Christ because all of them point and lead us to Jesus Christ. And we find that in Exodus chapter 12, that incredible story about that 10th plague in which God creates the Passover lamb. The Passover is initiated. Everything that the people of God will have will be marked from here forward. This is a beginning point. And you recall the Passover in which God said to the people, you as my people entrusted me must take a lamb, a Passover lamb without defect. And again, friends, don't miss the symbolism of what God is painting of what he's gonna do through Christ. A lamb without defect. And you will take that lamb and you will sacrifice and eat that lamb and take the blood and you'll place it over the door at the top and both sides and that is a picture of a cross. And God was painting a picture of what would take place roughly a millennia and a half later when Jesus Christ would come. John 10, 9. Jesus said, I am the door the blood is over the door. And wherever the blood was, the angel of death passed over and life existed. Whenever it wasn't, life was extinguished. And God is painting a picture of who Jesus Christ is and Jesus would come. And we remember, as we observe the Lord's Supper next week, we'll be reminded of that in which Jesus takes that at the Passover and he says that was a picture of me because I am the door and everyone who passes through me as the door will be saved so finding yourself in the book of Exodus we see Christ there how about yourself the very first commandment Exodus 20 verse 3 you shall have no other gods before me the book of Exodus reminds us and forces a question upon us, are there any other gods before God in our life? Things that we have surrendered a part of our life to, but we have not yet surrendered to Christ. That's why as we pray at the end of the service each time, it's talking about being fully surrendered to Christ. But if we are not fully surrendered to Christ, it means there is another God before God. Something else is taking precedence over our relationship with God. In many ways, we're doing what Pharaoh said. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I will be the authority over my life. I pray that there are no other gods before God in your life. And then time that we pray in just a moment that we would search that out and make it right if, there, it's, if it isn't right. So the story of Route 66 is that we have a problem that only Jesus can resolve. And the problem is that we are in bondage to our sin 
until we are delivered by Jesus Christ. And God fully expects us to then be transformed into the image of Christ by the power of Christ working through us. I hope we've all embraced the reality that we have a problem that only Jesus can resolve. That our sin separates us from God. Very specifically stated in Isaiah 59 too, your, ten, your sins separate you from God. We need to be delivered from our bondage. And God has a solution for that, just like he did through Moses in the Exodus. God's solution is Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. For God so loved the world, he didn't send a litany of saviors. For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, it is my prayer that in the next few moments, you would voice a prayer similar to the one that I will pray and fully surrender your life to Christ. If you're already a follower of Jesus Christ and you find that not everything in your life is surrendered to him, I pray that you would fully surrender everything to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for each book of the Bible that so vividly points our attention to you and reminds us of our desperate need for you. God, I pray that if anyone in this room or listening online has never fully surrendered their life to you as Lord and Savior, that today they would voice a prayer similar to this, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have, and I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. Lord, so oftentimes as we read through Exodus, we think most about Moses. But cause our attention this morning to be directed to those words of Pharaoh. Who is the Lord? that I should obey him. If we profess to be a Christian, yet we find that we are not fully obedient and fully surrendered to you, might this day become a beautiful day in which we fully surrender all of our life to you. Lord, thank you for this congregation, this church family. Lord, we do know that many are facing hardships, adversity, difficulty, and sadness even now. We pray for your sustaining strength. We pray that we would be reminded even this week of this book that reminds us that through Christ, we are delivered from bondage and transformed into those who are part of your family. May we live like that, fully surrendered to you and being that blessing to others because of our faith and trust in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Love you all. Thanks for listening. And again, just know that deacons uh, for the, the month of January, if you guys go ahead and be, begin to make your way back to the back of the aisle with your wife, utilize these folks to pray with you. They don't have better prayers than anybody else. They're just willing to pray with you right now. And I hope that you will submit yourself to just say, would you pray for me? 
Just pray over me for a moment, and I'll be standing at the cross to do the same thing, and you can meet us out in the atrium after the service with one of these communication cards and just give us attention as to how we can best minister uh, to you. So let's all stand together and respond as God leads us. Release from my chains, I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was a ransom he faithfully bore. He canceled my debt and he called me his friend. When death was arrested and my life began, Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in God bless you. Have a great week.